and welcome to episode 92 of the Tetrapods Orgy podcasts. I'm, I'm, I'm James Herbert's The Rats Trilogy, and I podcast with... Oh no, it takes me by surprise every time! Tyrannosaurus Rex. Alright, T-Rex. Um, there's an agenda, which I don't... Oh, it, okay, one, so one of the problems we have is that Oh my god, so much time between recordings. I listen to many other podcasts and I have no idea how people are able to say, oh yes, that was episode 57. <laughs> or as we as we said last time, last week, um, whereas, okay, news, news from the world of Darren and John, jingle. News from the world of Darren and John. Stop. Any news from the world of John, John? Or t- sorry, T-Rex. <laughs> Hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, I've been dead for quite some time, so no. Also, no preparation. Wow. Well, I got some news from the yeah. world of Darren. News from the world of Darren. Quite a lot of it, actually. Uh, where should I start? Right. So, I don't think that on the po- have I spoken about going to Tajikistan on the podcast? I haven't, have mm. I? No. It's nothing to do with the fact that you've also been to Central Asia because you've been to uh, Kazakhstan, yeah, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, and Uzbekistan. Wow, several of the three of the stands. There's about seven. Um, I've been to Tajikistan. So during, I think, oh my god, <laughs> I've, some months ago, I'm going to say September. That uh, doesn't feel <laughs> right. Um, I and a team of colleagues went to far western. Tajikistan, the Karatag and Romet valleys in the northwest of the country. And this was uh, because I'm, uh, you know, I do paleontological field work, and Central Asia is well known as a, a good place for people finding Cretaceous dinosaurs and stuff. There's been, when people hear this, they're like, oh, what did you dig up? And I thought, well, it's nothing to do with paleontology at all. It was field work to do with living animals. And uh, I, we were predominantly interested in checking out some re- regions that were as remote as we could get to but as it turned out they weren't remote at all uh, <laughs> uh what okay so where do i start with this i haven't planned this at all we went out there to assess the um like uh, <laughs> strength or otherwise of claims that tigers persist in western Tajikistan which involves actual field work in places where you think tigers you might find evidence for tigers and it also involves talking to local people a lot and we also while we were there so I'm going with cryptozoologists so Richard Freeman who's quite a well-known um, uh, author and speaker on the subject of mystery animals and Chris Clark, who's been on many expeditions and has also published uh, work on the subject, and John Orrin Hare, he's like a whole nother thing. <laughs> and <laughs> we, um, God bless him. Um, yes, it was it was really interesting, and um, we collected loads of data, certainly enough to publish. And I, uh, we're in the process of writing it up. The paper's like half, well, the paper's more than half done. The paper's mostly done. I just haven't got time to finish it, so it's like anecdotal support for the persistence of tigers because there aren't supposed to be tigers there they're supposed to be extinct officially mm-hmm. so 
how is it that people like claim familiarity with them? I don't I don't really know what the story is, but the data that we collected is is publication worthy. And we also collect stories about the local variants of the wild man. So across Central Asia, there are stories, anecdotes about the Almas or Almasti and local variants thereof. I really don't know what to make of them. And in that part of Tajikistan, the creature is called the ghoul. And we collected a bunch of ghoul stories. And again, this is worthy of writing up, you know, proper publication. What was really interesting about them is lots of stuff that's interesting about them. But the main interesting thing about them is nearly all of them are like stories that we're mostly talking to older men. We did speak to a few women, actually, but it's mostly older men are the people you get to talk to. Um, and their stories are like from their childhood or from their fathers or their grandfathers or their grandfather's grandfathers. They're, they're, they're those kinds of stories, mm-hmm. which, yeah, puts them in. They're, they're not told as like weird, creepy stories. They're told as like sightings of an unusual animal. But um, nevertheless, it was interesting that they're sort of like at the edge of living memory. And that wasn't the case for the tiger stories. The tiger stories were like, yeah, I saw five last year and I saw one the year before that and I saw one the year before that. Really? <laughs> yeah, at close range. Uh, uh, I could say a lot more, but I don't want to. So Tajikistan was amazing. Um, absolutely loved it. If you follow me on social media, I've shared <clears throat> tens of the photos that I took of like the incredible mountainous terrain. It was absolutely everything I really, you know, I've been wanting to go to Central Asia for year, well, decades, literally. And um, this is my first ever trip flown over Central Asia to get to China, <laughs> worked in China. But um, yeah, my God, it was unbelievable. Loved it. Loved the people yeah. there. Yeah. Loved the architecture, you know, the cities we stayed in, Dushanbe, the capital. Yeah. So matching with what you've said about your time there. Yeah. Central and, Asia, um, those those countries are amazing. Yeah, definitely going back there. Probably going back there next year. And uh, I recorded and photographed uh, what wildlife I could. I am predominantly a natural historian. And I found like a million bugs and birds. I photographed hundreds of birds really badly. (laughs) (laughs) Bad-bottomed rodents, Darren? No, not a one. Really? Not Not a one. one. I'm not kidding. So apart from... Sheep, goats, cattle, dogs, humans didn't see a single mammal. Not one. Not not hmm. a mouse. Not a rat. Certainly no marmots or anything like that, which is what you saw. Um, I was, you know, surprised. And that kind of connects to what I said a minute ago about remote but not that remote, because basically everywhere we went, I don't know what expectation you might have about a nation like Tajikistan, but everywhere we went there was the heavy footprint of humanity. Um, even in the, we, we, we got out as far as we could and we walked, we, we went to, we drove out to relatively <laughs> uh, air quotes, remote places, not remote at all, but you know, we drove out for like sort of a day away from the, the towns and stuff into the countryside. And then in some of those places where we had a base, which was near to like a village where there's, you know, there's a couple of couple of homesteads and like a little farm and, you know, people farming and stuff. There's, it's mostly, it's mostly um, livestock farming, sheep, cattle, goats, but it's also beekeeping. Everybody there keeps bees, bees everywhere, which by the way, say something that you don't hear often enough. That's not good, right? People think bees are ah, lovely nature. No, it's the honeybee. It's a domestic animal. And, 
it's it like removes like a lot of resources from you know actual natural occurring uh, you know like like local insects so the fact that you can see honeybees everywhere is not a good thing that is like that's the same as releasing like in terms of biomass it's probably not that different from releasing you know like a million head of cattle or something <laughs> that's a lot of bees darren well it is a lot of bees but when it's like thousands and thousands of hives each containing thousands and thousands of insects if not millions so yeah honeybees everywhere um yeah even even when we did these walks we went to places that were like at the edge of endurance i'm not kidding like i walk a lot i know that in a day i can walk uh my limit is round about 25 kilometers that's as much as i can walk in a day and we did nearly that and we got to these like air quotes remote places and it was obvious that this was like everyone's weekend barbecue spot (laughs) there was like there was like garbage there was like like you know bags of food the ground heavily compacted and it's like there there aren't going to be animals like undiscovered hominins and supposedly extinct tigers hanging around here so um yeah Yeah. there's some sort of i don't know it's a cultural bias or something but like we sort of imagine places that are far away and we don't know very much about are remote i guess and then you go there and realize oh it's as full as full of people as anyone else is well i mean yeah yes and no i mean technically it's not because i think the whole of i don't know off the top of my head i've got no idea how big tajikistan is but like it's gonna be bigger than the whole of the uk and yet there's less than 10 million people in the whole country so in terms of like population density there's nobody living there but as is so often the case with parts of the world that are used heavily agriculturally because like if there's people if if people own like you know a hundred goats or sheep and every single day, in fact, more than once in a day, they take those animals out to the countryside to graze on the hills. That is a massive human impact on the landscape. It's obviously not, you know, it's not reflected in built things, but it is reflected on the human impact on the landscape. And that was obvious. That was really obvious to me everywhere. We went. It's like, I can see that cattle and sheep and stuff come here every single day. And <clears throat> people are roaming around, people and their dogs. Everyone's got dogs that that they need to keep the livestock safe from uh there are wolves and bears there and um we we definitely saw recent evidence for bears we saw dung quite quite a few times actually um but you know dogs dogs everywhere that are allowed to roam around and do what they like have got a job um they also have an impact on obviously you know how visible and findable wildlife is yeah um yeah so so don't yeah i mean i don't i don't think we make those of us that know what we, that know a little bit about the world don't make this mistake that when a nation is mostly kind of like sort of arable agri- agricultural it's not that doesn't mean it's like a wild place it's the exact opposite it's like people have had such an impact on the landscape we found also one more point on this is a big part of tajikistan's story is this kind of like time of sorrow when they were part of the uh, Soviet Union and the former Soviet Union basically used nations like Tajikistan as kind of like their backyard to do whatever they liked. And um, that resulted in various kind of like, you know, economic problems and um, labor force problems. Cause like men, for example, were transported away to like the cities in what's now Russia. And 
that meant things like fuel shortages and massive economic hardship. And one of the things they did during times of fuel shortage, I think during the 60s, is they basically cut down all the trees. So loads of the hillsides you could see were relatively recently denuded. They were they so they had trees on them, but they were all like young, shrubby, like weedy trees. They didn't have like big old things of centuries old or whatever, which apparently they did have um, if you visited, say, in the first half of the 20th century, which is when some of the uh, people that have written about the wildlife and the cryptozoology of those places did they, their, their experiences pre 1960s. So they actually were visiting, you know, like an entirely different landscape. Mm. Capital yeah. capitalism isn't the only system to destroy the environment, not by a long shot. That's uh, true. Yeah. Um, oh, one more thing on Tajikistan. Yeah, I mentioned birds. So uh, I've always been really interested in the wildlife of Central Asia. You know, you you go to some one of these places, you're going to see as a European person, I'm going to see loads of bird species that I uh, that, that I know from here in Western Europe. They're all there in places like Tajikistan, but they also have unusual more eastern subspecies that that look odd to western eyes and they also have species that we don't have here and if you read the blog tetrapodology i've written at length about the birds i saw because i don't go on kind of like expert you know you know i don't go on these like sort of guided bird tour things where you see like a thousand species in the course of two days you know and going to take into these exact spots i just do what i call flyby bird watching which is you walk around with the camera and if you see something try and photograph <laughs> it but even doing that i think i got i don't know somewhere around about 70 species which is not bad including some some good ones so it's pretty happy with that loads of obscure chats and warblers and the uh, falcons and Hardly saw any water birds because didn't really go to watery places. Bee eaters, bee eaters were hyper abundant, unsurprisingly, in view of what I've said and uh, about bees. And I, I regret not talking to uh, when we spoke to people. I regret not talking to them about what their what their opinion was of bee eaters, whether it's like an acceptable loss or whether they hate them and want them expunged. <laughs> I, I just it'd be interested. Gotta say, I'm a little bit surprised that bee eaters do actually eat bees. Please in the name. <laughs> Yeah, but usually the name is misleading. It's true. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, bee eaters are specialized bee eaters. Who'd have thought? Amazing. Yeah. All right. I could talk for much, much more on uh, Tajikistan, but that will do. So, 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 you didn't see anything, though. This we is didn't, what. We weren't no. very clear on this. Didn't see a tiger. Maybe you did say you literally didn't see a tiger. Do you yeah. think there's a chance that. Um, Maybe you don't want to give too much away if you're going to write it up, but the um, some of the tiger sightings, the recent ones, are feral things like we have here and other places. <clears throat> um, oh, trafficked no, tigers or big cats. No, I'm prepared to say what what I'm going to say in the in the final paper when we when we publish it, assuming we obviously do get it published. Um, they they. They certainly seem to me like absolutely genuine reports, real observations. What we couldn't pin down, and we did try to, and we're going to have to do this, is there's the different kinds of tigers look different. So the okay, so the tiger that's supposed to be in that part of the world is meant to be the Caspian tiger, which is a particularly big, shaggy-furred tiger that might be genetically contiguous with the Amur or Siberian tiger, and everyone knows what they look like. So the the, the the tigers they should be seeing 
should be like you know you know like Siberian tigers got like a big sort of like roughy beardy kind of thing and yeah. they're quite they're quite shaggy tigers particularly in the winter and they're also physically large that's distinctive relative like a typical like tiger you see on tv i mean annoyingly the tiger that increasingly the tiger that's most common in certainly zoos here in europe is the siberian tiger so for many people the tiger they see the most is actually the siberian tiger rather than say like you know the indian bengal tiger or indo-chinese tigers or the small island dwelling ones or what, what, what have you but um yeah we did ask a few questions that tried to determine yeah if people could work out like what kind of tiger it was and they weren't really too hot on that they just said oh, it was just a tiger like the one i saw on tv which made me think if it was actually like a caspian tiger you would remember things like the shaggy rough and the sort of longer um fur and stuff like that so that's interesting maybe um, maybe depends on what sort of things people are attuned to doesn't it well okay well there's also the fact that we are talking to tajik people through an interpreter who speaks english and tajik um but his english was not you know he's not a native speaker so it was actually sometimes quite difficult to get to the specific nuances of you know things like anatomical descriptions and everything but um but we did all the we did all the sorts of um we asked you know, we differentiated between the different kinds of cats. We made sure we weren't talking about lynxes, wildcats, leopards or snow leopards, which are all in the country as well. And as is so often the case around the world, we find that people use the term tiger for cats that aren't panthera tigris. They they, they call the snow leopard and the leopard tiger as well in some parts of the country, I think. So uh, you had to, you know... You did have to be really specific. The the striped tiger, and they start they then they oh yeah striped tiger striped cat start talking about like the wild cat as in the same you know it's basically same species as domestic cat. And it's like no 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 the, the one that's this big <laughs> yeah. So we did we did nail it down. So it it the the quality of the reports was enough to make me think that there probably is something in it. Mm-hmm. So further work is needed, basically. But um, you have to go back. Have to go back. And like I say, we just weren't in a, you know, initially I had kind of, you know, fantastic ideas about trekking through the wilderness quietly in the dark, maybe at night, because we did go out during the night and, you know, looking for eye shine and sort of, you know, possibly seeing impressive animals. And that really wasn't a possibility. Like, if you're lucky, you might see like another person out at night. Don't know, don't know why there were people out at night, but there were, maybe they were hunting and um owls and stuff like that but um no tigers and no wild men <laughs> yeah <laughs> all okay. right should we move, move on yep so what's next what's next very very briefly i want to get through all these things quite briefly because oh my god time oh my god it's only half off already um dinosaurs how they lived and evolved the third edition now exists Ooh. with this beautiful new piece of art by Bob Nichols on the cover, mm-hmm. featuring the British Baryonychian Spinosaurid Ceratosuchops infrarodios. Um, so, yeah, if you... <clears throat> now, you know, I don't know what the deal is if you buy a book and then you find out a new edition, new edition's out, because a lot of people say, like, well, I've already got the book, I'm not going to buy, like, further editions... If you're some sort of like weirdo collectory type person, as I am, then if there's a book you're really into, you might deliberately try and get the different editions. I, I do that for some things I'm really interested in. 
But I would say that third edition of Dinosaurs How They Lived and Evolved does include enough different stuff to certainly if you own the first edition, it's definitely worth getting the third one because there's a, there's enough new stuff in it to justify that. Um, I I got various illustrations changed. Paul, uh, this is co-authored with Paul Barrett at the Natural History Museum. Both of us did make numerous changes to the text, but they're kind of you know you have to really know your stuff to sort of see why we've changed the text on the ornithoskeleta hypothesis or what we say about mm-hmm. dinosaur physiology, or you know new bits of text we've added about noasaurid ceratosaurs or you know what have you that all those things are in there but um yeah you'd have to be super nerdy to spot them um but whatever i have new stock of it i'll be selling it at tetzucon which we'll come to in a minute so you think normie should skip every second edition maybe you know just get the odd editions or the even stick to odd or evens well i think normies as you put it john uh probably only buy a book and that's it it's like this, there's other editions, who cares? But I think specialists and uber nerds, and that's probably the majority of my listeners, are like, hell yes, I need that new edition. It's not like, we're not talking about a £100 or £50 book. We're talking about like a sixteen ninety nine in the UK book. So uh, Yeah, that's cheap. Yeah, you can afford just... to have every edition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what names? Um on the subjects of publications i also want to mention so this is because this is so that book is published by the natural history museum in landon they publish this magazine evolve which i think is only and this is annoying this is the annoying thing talking about it i think it's only available to people that are kind of like members of the museum society or whatever you know there's kind of like a natural history you can join you can be a member of the natural history museum and you then get this magazine I don't think you can just go and get it on the shelf or anything, which mm. is okay. That's, is, is, that's excluded a huge chunk of the potential readership. Although I do obviously share cheeky PDFs if people approach me. Um, and in this one, this is the autumn 2023 edition. Look, there's a da 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 da. That's not the music from Prehistoric Planet. It's a Prehistoric Planet <laughs> article. Step back in time. Um, I really like this because it's it's my only chance to actually publish a background making of prehistoric planets. So, because as might not be a surprise, I tried from day one to get a book off the ground and all those efforts have failed. Uh, so when I was actually asked to do this article, I'm like, heck yes, that is so I'm pretty happy with it. Maybe there'll still be a book. Maybe not. <clears throat> Maybe not. <laughs> well, like, like I'm, I don't. You know, obviously, it's not in my interest to badmouth Apple. I certainly wouldn't do that. It's a prehistoric planet is an Apple product, and what are Apple about? Apple are about tech, computery type things, and AirPods or whatever and stuff like phones and things, and they're about software. Do they publish books? Do they release DVDs? I think <laughs> I think they explicitly stated that they're, they're the very antithesis of those things. So, um, so for books, I don't think there's interest. I really have Ooh, tried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Prehistoric is planet is the funny thing about these big tech people getting into all these different areas. Like, yeah, they're not going to well, do the same sorts of things, are they? 
I know it's and that it's a significant loss because mm. like what so where is that it's obvious that tons of information was compiled and exists on everything included in prehistoric planet and there is not the venue to get it out uh prehistoric planet exists as a <clears throat> a tv show that's available through streaming and that's it so uh, mm. well there's um, a podcast Oh, and the podcast, oh my God, there's a Prehistoric Planet podcast. So for those of you who don't know, yeah, it's like it's like four or five episodes. It's very professionally done. Like proper, it's a proper podcast, not like this this one. <laughs> and <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I feature in it quite a bit. Some episodes more than others, as do other uh, yeah, people that, that did work um, on, on the series. Sir David Attenborough does, does appear in at least one of the episodes. Yeah, go and listen to that if you haven't already. I think it's pretty good. I've listened to it a few times. I confess I have not listened to it, and perhaps I should. What a surprise. What a surprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Have we, like, again, it shocks me that I can't, just can't remember this. Have we spoken about Prehistoric Planet on the podcast? Yes. Y- you really? Yeah. <laughs> I just don't remember. Um, could say a lot about it, but not today. Have you? I know you haven't watched it. Are you aware of Loop Life on Our Planet, the Netflix series? No. Yeah. Um. Now, I, of course, know personally quite a few of the people involved in Loop, as we call it. I know their their scientific advisors. The Toms, hello Toms, if you listen, there's two of them. Uh, I know various of the sort of, well, I probably know all of the scientists who uh, advise them. I don't know Morgan Freeman, the uh, the narrator. Um, yeah, and I know various of the sort of like executive people and the producers and whatnot as well. And for those reasons, <laughs> I deliberately don't say anything in public about Loop. But I will say this. Um, no, I, I don't want to say anything negative. Or <laughs> you say, won't. Or you won't. I, I just don't want to say anything negative because, like, most of like, okay, I'll frame it this way: the the way the stories are told, the sort of narratives about like history of life, they basically try to do. It's kind of like Life on Earth, the famous David Attenborough led. BBC series in that it's this grand, this is the story of how life was compiled, you know, like first of all, there's the things in the sea and then, and then life comes onto lands. There's yeah. arthropods, by the way, there's not just tetrapods and plants and whatnot. Then there's the age of dinosaurs. There's some stuff before that. <laughs> and then there's stuff yeah. after the age of dinosaurs. Yeah. That's, they've sort of like gone through it like that, but whoever actually, like oh my god it's it's such a sort of like hollywood does the history of life it's like a new dynasty will rise and it will be overtaken by the next dynasty and these ones they were destined to succeed they had a special trick up their sleeve they improved themselves through special new technological advancement it's all stuff like that it's like it's these kind of catchphrases about like 
and then another one came along and it's i can't i can't justify it i can't i can't like you know explain very well what i'm trying to say but it's it's this kind of like heroic narrative about the history of life because these guys were destined to succeed and then these guys they had their they had their shot and the shadow of doom was on their face all the time it's like if you know anything about the history of life it's like none of that is an accurate portrayal of what happened it's basically just like toss the dice and like some 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 bunches of things die and others don't and yeah there's there's innovations and stuff but you can't say ah those are the winning ones because they've got the magic extra jaw joint or whatever it's all do you know what i'm trying to say it's all I do. So, yeah, they try to tell it as sort of a struggle of heroes and with in, intrinsic, um, you know, character or something of whole, what, the phylogenetic mess that is life on Earth and trying to make those into sort of characters almost, right? Oh, yeah. I think. And yeah. it's just like, this is the dumbest way to understand this stuff. It doesn't help you at all in understanding evolution or what happens or why why we why we have thought where we are yeah yeah exactly yeah so i, I think got... yeah oh, I don't yeah know. it's this is kind of why i don't i yeah i get sick of watching documentaries because for every good one there's like three like that and you can kind of so i shouldn't be i shouldn't be too down on them because some of the ones that are done in that style aren't wrong if you see what i mean they're not necessarily bad documentaries but the style is so grating that i i can't watch them so yeah. Yeah. Well, like like I said, I I don't want to badmouth them. He says at this point. Oops. But um, I I I have I have mixed feelings about it because like that for me is the overriding take home from it. The fact that it's this like really frustrating heroic narrative, which is completely not in keeping with what anybody <laughs> thinks that works on this stuff. On the other hand, as a life on Earth style parade of changes through the ages, it's successful. It's like it's probably done it better. It's shown it better than anyone else has, and has shown it well. I'm not going to start talking about the, you know, the actual look of the um, assets, the, the models, and the animation. I'm just not going to touch on that at all. There's some really good stuff, and there's some not really good stuff. But um, yeah, it's obvious their heart was in the right place. But this Hollywoodification, which is sort of unavoidable with some of these things, I probably shouldn't be talking about this, given my prehistoric planet connections but there you go i had to say something and i noticed i haven't said it anywhere else okay exclusive um, uh, uh eight out of ten bats so you probably aren't aware but there's a there's a thing that bbc does called the watches spring watch autumn watch and very successful format and for whatever reason, one of those things has been cancelled. I think Autumn Watch has been cancelled, and there was a bit of an uproar when it was cancelled. Um, I can't say any more about that because I work for the BBC. Dot, dot, dot. But a spin-off of it is a <clears throat> YouTube TV series led by Chris Packham called 8 Out of 10 Bats. And that's kind of like a fun title when it's kind of got a natural history connection. And it's basically done in the same the same style as The Watches. But because it's independent, because it's not to the BBC, they have basically been, um, well, a lot freer in terms of what they cover. So they've been very critical of the the UK government and anything to do with environmental policy legislation, you know, things that are not going on so well mm-hmm. they've 
they've done uh, things that again you couldn't do on mainstream TV. Like for example, they did a film on deer culling. Now everyone that's interested in ecology, natural history, um, and you know, related issues, the natural world, ecology, etc. Everyone knows that, uh, like it or not, animals have to die. <laughs> that's a fact. They have to <laughs> die. That is a fact of nature. Don't say these and, things on this podcast, Darren. And if you've got a uh, part of the world where there are no natural predators for a species like a big-bodied herbivore, well, then you have to do something about it. And it's is it surprising that the topics like that are such like what's the right term? Hot, hot potato doesn't seem like the right catch-all term for what I'm trying to describe. They're contentious issues. It's like you can't just go and shoot deer. It's like well, we've got no wolves, <laughs> we've got no bears. It's like someone's got to do it. Someone's got to actually, you know. Um, so so for example, like I'm I'm not discussing that right now. I'm just saying they did a film about that. They did a film about the fact that deer culling is an is a necessary thing and this is how deer have to be killed and how it's done you know ethically and whatnot and you can't do a film like that um for uh mainstream media uh, i hate that i shouldn't use that term that's a stupid right-wing term uh you should you can't do it for something like sort of mate um like what's the, i don't think there's anything wrong with the term mainstream media darren right wing is use it it's, but so it's what? Con- it's co- I, I don't want to use it because of its connotation because it comes from right-wing grifters what do you call the a prime time is what i'm looking for you can't do a prime time mainstream channel show about the fact that people need to go and shoot like thousands of deer a year in the country like the uk you can't do that because it because it's seen as a contentious topic but well, they did it. it's also just a freaking downer right i can imagine as a media programmer like oh, really <laughs> I'm gonna do about. We're gonna do a story about how we kill lots of deer. That sounds great, guys. There's Bambi. There's Bambi. There's another Bambi. Yeah, yeah that'll, that'll get them viewers in, won't it? I. Well, I don't know. Hunting, hunting is a quite a popular topic, actually, and we just don't have like a hunting culture in the in the UK. And, um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not anti-hunting at all. I'm anti. I'm anti some particular kinds of hunting. I'm going off on a complete tangent here. The whole reason yeah. I'm talking—I notice about... we've got a main topic, and we're not even through the first line of the five-line agenda. When will you learn to not talk so much? I about keep all telling this stuff? you one thing, one thing, and you've got like I don't know, fifteen things in this agenda. Uh, so l- l- watch this. I don't mind watch. talking about this. We just won't get to the main event. We will. We'll. We will. Real. Real quick. So eight out of ten. Haven't we bats. been talking? Haven't we been talking for forty-five oh, minutes or so? Something like that. Okay. So they did a feature on Darren's toy collection. So go, <laughs> go to eight out of ten bats on YouTube. There's a short <laughs> film where I am interviewed by Anishwa, Anishwa Kanchala, who's this like I think he's like eight years old or something. He's this. Uh, uh, kid who's doing various natural history shows. He's great. He's going to be at TetsuCon as a special guest, and he and I talk about model dinosaurs. Uh, finally, news from the world of Darren, <laughs> Loch Ness Monster Films. Two films have just... I'm going to start doing Dave Hone technique out now. Uh, two new Loch Ness Monster Films have just come out. Uh, one of them was on Channel 5, uh, 22nd of September. Uh, it's it's online until 2027. It's called Loch Ness Hunting the Monster. It's two hours long, and it features loads of people talking about Loch Ness Monster. I'm in it. Elsa Panzeroli's in it. Uh, and there's also a thing that premiered last week. I was unable to go to the in- the Inverness premiere, sadly. It's called Loch Ness. They created a monster, a film by John McLaverty. And um, 
that is actually more about the uh, shenanigans of the various people uh, involved in the whole um, Loch Ness Monster industry. Yes, industry. Use that term for a reason. News from the world of world of news world. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a jingle for that. News from the world of news. Dun, dun, dun. Um, I'm not going to do that because I am going to publish soon a, a couple of articles that are about new species named in 2023. That will easily burn up half an hour, so let's skip that. What's new at Tet Zoo? I think that's a jingle for that. Yeah, that's my favourite jingle. I love that jingle. The section of the show called uh, What's New at Tet Zoo? <laughs> um, <laughs> so of the most interesting things recently published at the blog Tetrabodology, which I think listeners of this podcast might listen to or should read (laughs) did you you read we've spoken about it before did you read my overlong review of alan fiducia's romancing the birds and dinosaurs forays in post modern (laughs) uh, post modern paleontology or something I did. Oh, you're kidding. What did you think? Well, we've spoken of it at length, so there didn't feel like there was... <laughs> you skimmed it. Oh, Darren's already yeah. made this point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I have got to thank... Um, Let me just find his... Although, uh... I, I've got to say, like, um, you know, it's... Yeah, it's obviously more thorough and more closely argued than we've we've talked about it freeform, and it's good to have all you know the pictures and stuff which you've like. Really, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I've, I've, got to, I've got to thank Martin Nui, Newcam. Apologies for the pronunciation. Newcam of AG Evo Bio, who actually provided me with the book to review. Um, and my uh, article was published uh, at AG Evo Bio. Uh, translated into German. It's mostly a website for German speakers. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll just say one thing on this review, and I think I've said it before anyway, but you read Fiducia's take on birds and other dinosaurs and archosaurs in general, and nearly every kind of air quotes factual statement he makes is is in some way objectionable or arguable it's like that's not actually right i need to correct that and if you did a book review that focused on those you'd have you'd have a book length like review seriously like you could write that well not could one must write thousands of words if you corrected them on these points and i could see straight away that was going to be an issue so i can't i can't just like go through every single one of these things so instead it was obvious when reading it that the way the actual style of argumentation he uses is basically all the dirty tricks it's like i refuse to accept this there's no way this is true and it's obvious it's much more obvious that this happened and these guys say this but have they considered what piltdown man ever meant for science it's it's all it's all these like basically i don't want to overuse this term because i used it quite a few times in the article it's basically dirty tricks it's like intellectual little like like specific problematic styles of argumentation so I thought, rather than focus on the, the the details to do with dinosaurs and whatnot, it's better to actually out him for this really like dastardly style of arguing. So uh, 
which you generally can do with contrarians. It's not that they really care that much about the facts. It's some broad brush. Well, I refuse to accept this. I just this just cannot be right. This is just ridiculous. Those <laughs> those those kinds of arguments. So that's mostly what the article's about. Yes, at some point, yeah, people are contrarians and yeah, it's more about their style of argument than things they actually say because it's sort of, well, similar to a gish gallop, isn't it? There's so much stuff that like, well, refuting all these points is just, you know. Although, obviously, you've come close to a book length. Yeah. And you do refute specific points. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I, I think also what's interesting about things, this sort of article, it's like your review, obviously. But it's also, it goes over again. I think it's kind of interesting to go over again in some depth what the actual arguments are for, like, why we now think this sort of thing, which people didn't used to think. Um, and the modern summary of it. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, you could say loads more about that subject. Not today. Um, let's, right. You can do this. Some brief promotion for TetsuCon 2023. Yes, or, do you want, or do you want me to do it? <clears throat> well, we can both do it. Right. So this year, TetsuCon's a bit different. We've got multiple streams and we've got a couple of events that are open to the general public. They are the general public. TetsuCon is open to the general public. But these events are you can buy separate tickets if you're not coming to the whole thing. I don't know how many of that's relevant to many of our listeners, but maybe they have friends that they would like to bring along to these events and they can do so. Um, and so we're starting on the Friday, the 1st of December, which is Icebreaker Drinks. You can register there if you like. And we've got a panel event, Engaging with Extinctions, Past, Present and Future. So that's on the Friday night. Do you know anything about that event, Darren? Do you want to talk about it a bit more? Yeah, it's a panel event involving about five people. I'm not going to list them. It'll take me too long. Uh, we're basically giving sort of opening, uh, you know, statements about what we think about extinction, how it relates to our work, and then we're going to have like a yeah a panel discussion. And it's not it's not just like hardcore sciencey stuff about the statistics of extinction. No, no, it's a uh, it's more kind of um, you know we've got like people more on the sort of like arty side of things we've got people that work with living animals and are involved in outreach and broadcasting so um yeah yeah sort of engagement of the culture around it and what people feel about it that sort of thing yeah rather yeah. than the specific events yeah um and then on saturday the second which is what you know is the traditional um ted zoo slot we're starting at what, 10 a.m um TetsuCon is different, as I said, this year. So we've also got multiple streams. Um, we've always had a little bit of a multi-stream, you know, Paleo Art Workshop, um, because of its limited capacity, ran separately to the other things. But um, this year we've got multiple streams for several things. Uh, because TetsuCon's got too big to fit all in one thing. Um, and <laughs> last year... Having everyone in that big lecture theatre for the whole time, it got unbearably hot in the um, afternoons <laughs> because it turns out that no no venues are really designed to be absolutely full all day for two days, which is interesting. <laughs> um, and TetsuCon is so popular. That's what we do. We break venues. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we're splitting it up and there's some gaps um, to let the vent, let the lecture theatres cool down a little bit from the hot, fiery um, talks that you gave in Tatsukon. Uh -huh. um, but also uh, what we're doing is running the Paleo Art Workshop is super popular, but because generally the the room has capacity, we had to have registration for it and I charged extra money for it because just to make sure that people who were coming really wanted to come because of the limited capacity. But um, this year it's free for all because it's running for the whole of TetsuCon. There will be Paleo Art Workshop stuff going on for the entirety of the event. Um, and on Saturday night, I think you should talk a little bit about who we've got coming and stuff, but I'm just going to yeah, talk yeah. about these other events going on. Uh, on Saturday night, we have another event that's open for other people. If you want to bring friends along, or you just don't like Tetsuocon all that much and you only want to come to a little bit of it, um, we're having an art, art, art exhibition and drinks reception uh, at 6pm on Saturday. And that is also five pounds to attend. So it's a pretty good deal. It's a pretty good deal, Darren. It is a very good deal. Um, yes. And so that is the extra events we've got. So we've got the Friday night and the Saturday night. So um, if you are coming to Tetsukon, bring your friends. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got, yeah. So uh, there are, there are times on the Saturday and Sunday where we have all three sessions active. Other times it's just two sessions. Other times it's just one of the sessions. So the paleo art session uh there's something going on there on big part big chunks of saturday and sunday there's a marine reptile session uh talks about marine reptiles that are happening at various times on saturday and sunday there's talks on um other things that aren't marine reptiles there's a couple of bird talks there's a talk on uh recently extinct crocodiles and dna we've got a lunchtime screening of the 1925 the lost world movie we've got rebecca rag sykes on hominins we have nigel marvin talking on sunday afternoon about uh filming adventures we've got a quiz at the end of sunday we've got cosplay this year we've got oh cos yeah Yes, a cosplay competition on Saturday. And I already know that some people are taking this very seriously. <laughs> so if you're listening and are intending to uh, engage in cosplay, we recommend that you only walk around in your giant costume um, on the um, Saturday afternoon. So like between lunchtime and um, six-ish. Oh, well, otherwise... if you want to come to the drinks reception in your costume, if you're not going to knock things over, that'd be great. I think people would like that. Yeah. I just, I'm just imagining there's going to be people with like 12 foot tails and all that sort of thing. So, <laughs> well, you know, well, that's a work of art in itself. But yes, yeah. obviously they can be cumbersome. Yeah. And the final thing worth saying is um, there's a lot of stalls. Because we've got these parallel sessions, this is more like a big convention where you just wander around and do what the hell you like. We're not going to, you know, it's not like the sort of meeting where you clap your hands at tea and say, right, everybody in that room now. We're not going to do that. So um there's constantly stuff happening in the main foyer there's going to be many stalls there's numerous uh like merchandise books toys figures um fridge magnets like all kinds of stuff is going to be on sale and um a bit scary actually financially i think a few people a few of us are already like oh my god i'm gonna survive <laughs> this i'm selling a whole bunch of books and things i've bought new stock of various of my books selling t-shirts also mugs oh look look a mug da da Oh, that's very nice. Isn't that good? I don't know if yeah. you can see that reverse. Yeah, that 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 is a the skull that I'm, that I've used is a, a plesiosaur skull because it's a marine reptile because it's from my marine reptile ancient sea reptiles book. Um, 
that'll probably do, won't it? Yeah, that, that's so. a bit of promotion. So we look forward to seeing at least some of you there. And uh, we're tickets are selling very well, and we are on track to. This is easily going to be the biggest, and ostensibly the best. It is easily the biggest so far. Yeah, I discovered that you've actually you've generated that graph of like you know viewer uh, visitor <clears throat> uh, year on year, and um, yeah. The, the stats there it's, we've we've in, we've increased apart from like obviously you got to take the pandemic into effect but um when we had the biggest turnouts because that was obviously via zoom <laughs> but otherwise we've gone like you know up by i don't know like a sort of a third or a quarter like year on year so um yep another 10 yep. years and we'll be able to sell it and sit back and just let other people do all the work the money will roll in <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, Tetsu, okay. early December, see you there. Now, in, in keeping with the last several episodes, we are going to talk once more about uh, ancient sea reptiles, thanks to the Natural History Museum book. Was it published this year? I think it was Ancient Sea Reptiles. It's, maybe it was published last year. I've already forgotten. Unbelievable. Because we're working through the different groups of ancient sea reptiles the major ones that is and this time it's the turn of those interesting mostly giant seagoing lizards the mosasaurs and i have a mosasaur chapter in here which reviews their what we know of their biology behavior evolutionary history and diversity let's talk mosasaurs so rather than just darren prattling on for 20 minutes that's what the people are here for though but is it i don't i don't know that what do you what do you want to talk about about mosasaurs what do you, what interests you what questions do you have about mosasaurs john i can hmm. say some ba- i can say some basic things but they're pretty tedious well like <clears throat> let's start with some basic things and i'll see if i object to any basic things about mosasaurs all right i'll tell you what i think about mosasaurs one of the things that one of the things that really annoys me when we talk about groups of animals is, oh my god, will you people just agree to use the same terms, right? Because <laughs> what is what is a mosasaur? When you say a mosasaur, most people think of the specific group, the mosasaurids, and that's the classic giant, fully what are called um, hydropedal, like flippered mosasaurs, but. There's a term Mosasauria, which includes the Agialosaurs, which are kind of like proto-Mosasaurs. I, I, I am fully aware that it's wrong to think about animals as prototypes, but Agialosaurs look like Mosasaur ancestors. So that's Mosasauroidia. Mosasauroidia is Agialosaurs and Mosasaurids. And then there's another group called Mosasauria, which is Mosasauroids plus Delicosaurs, which is another kind of group that's regarded as sort of ancestral to Mosasaurids. So you've got Mosasauria, Mosasauroidia, and Mosasauridae, and any one of those groups could be called vernacularly Mosasaurs. So when people say Mosasaurs, are they talking about the whole lot, in which case it includes kind of like 50 centimetre to metre long amphibious lizards? Or do they specifically mean just the giant, you know, like whale lizard, classic Lake Cretaceous one? So I think that's something that's always worth pointing out. We have um, these Agialosaurs and Delicosaurs and other animals from that part of the family tree. They're really interesting because they do seem to show quite convincingly, um, well, you know, 
the evolutionary steps involved in the assembly of, uh, you know, traits that lead to fully, fully committed aquatic life. We know that um, the mosasaurids were basically like whales, as in like if one gets stranded, it's probably going to die. It's not able to like, you know, jump around on mm-hmm. the crawl around on the land and stuff. They're viviparous. But as is the case for the other great mesotomian reptile groups, sauropterygians and uh, ichthyosauromorphs, viviparity evolved relatively early on. We know this because we've got uh, a an agiallosaur with um, embryos inside it. And so when people have written about this, they tend to assume that, ah, basically, as soon as they started thinking about, this is not how you think about evolution, as soon as they started thinking, oh, I'm going to become a marine giant, then they evolved viviparity. But could it actually be that some of these groups, there's viviparity has evolved many, many times within squamates, within snakes and lizards. So if you are viviparous for some other adaptive reason, because uh, like you live in a cool climate or whatever, that is that actually, a, could that pre-adapt you? For the transition to aquatic life, that's something worth. It's not about. like a. It's not like a five million year plan that I'm going to get therapy <laughs> now, so I can get big and go in the ocean later. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Always got to look for reverse causation with these things, don't you? Yeah, and those those like early diverging lineages, uh, Delicosaurs and Agiallosaurs, neither of which, by the way, are monophyletic. They're probably paraphyletic splurges across the family tree. Mm-hmm. Um, those animals mostly have like clawed limbs. They're separate digits. There was claws. They, they haven't gone fully hydropedal, which is the name for like, you know, full on uh, flippers. <clears throat> I prefer the term flippers to paddles because, um, they mean different things hydrodynamically. Um, flippers actually are involved in like lift generation and paddles are just used in sculling. And for at least some of yeah. these animals, we do think that the the limbs did have an active hydrodynamic um, effect, in which case they are, yeah, flippers. We know from skin impressions and such that mosasaurids had not just flippers, but they also had a um uh, a tail fluke <clears throat> excuse me and the agiallosaurs did not have that but the but soft tissues do show that some of them did have a raised fin running along the length of the tail so the tail is adapted for lateral sculling and during the course of evolution the tail became more specialized such that rather than the whole thing being adapted for lateral uh, for for sculling it's basically just the fluked terminal portion that's uh, generating thrust. Um, we've got skin impressions and such from numerous mosasaurs, which show they were scaly skinned. It's been suggested that some of them weren't scaly, they were naked skinned, but uh, there isn't evidence for that at the moment. And their scales are really small, and their scales are quite complex. Their scales are keeled, which is another problematic term, because I think a keel is always meant to be on the underside of something, like the keel of a ship or whatever is on the underside. If you had like a, a sort of like... <laughs> If you had like a a crest along the top, if it's on the top, it's not a keel. But in reptile scales, whenever you've got ridges or crests on the scale, no matter where it is, they're called keels. And I actually think that terminology is technically wrong, but whatever. Well, the problem is that, you know, there'd be keels on the bottom and ridges on the top. And what are they on the side? Lateral keels. 
<laughs> lateral Lat- ridges. Lateral Lat- ridges and lateral acoustic because we need more terminology. Let's get into a real argument about yeah. whether this one's per- perfectly side on or not. Yeah. Well, like the complexity of of scales in squarmates is already it's absolutely nuts. It's unbelievably complicated. Like all the detail that's going on, all the structures on scales. Um, because the uh, air quotes keels on most of scales run in the anterior posterior or craniochordal direction. They're parallel to the animal's long axis. There's a suggestion, I think made informally, I don't think anybody ever actually published it properly, a suggestion that they function in control of laminar flow around the outside of the animal. So this is established for the uh, denticles on sharks. The denticles Mm -hmm. on sharks also have these ridges parallel to the long axis and they function in forming a kind of boundary layer that basically somehow bizarrely you know it's, it's it, it not bizarrely it's, it seems counterintuitive that adding structures to a scale on the outside of an animal makes it more streamlined that's counterintuitive but it is the fact because it generates a boundary that i'm no hydrodynamicist but um <laughs> Yeah, it's like that's a thing in in sharks. That's a thing. A boundary they it cre- creates a boundary layer. And I think that ridges on the skin of some cetaceans has also been shown to have this uh, the same effect. So it's been informally suggested that the ridges on mosasaur scales might do the same thing. But a study by some people. Um, Mark Young was one of those people. I've forgotten the other one. I know him and I've forgotten his name. Um, they basically showed that the scales, even though tiny, were not tiny enough for it to actually work. There is a study on this that says, nah, it's this, it's for something else. Oh. So I don't quite know what the deal is. And in building Mosasaur um, models, both digitally and real world real scale um patches of skin for various projects prehistoric <laughs> planet i can say that um what it means in real life is that mosasaurs um big ones would have had a kind of like velveteen look to their texture that may actually have been semi iridescent they sort of would have had like a sort of a strange light scattering property, which is a mm-hmm. side effect of this, the density of these of these ridges on these small scales. And I don't know what that means. And I don't think anybody does. And it's really interesting. And it's kind of understudied. Yeah. Um, like... Hypothesis. Hypothesis. They were able to hold a bubble of air over the whole body and use it as an aqua suit. <laughs> I'm not being entirely serious. Yeah, obviously. Um, yeah, hydrodyna- hydrodynamics of these animals is obviously incredible. All animals in- and aerodynamics of animals is incredibly complicated, and we don't really have the answers to a lot of things. We've got sort of insights in certain parts, but like the idea that we understand the entirety of the, or that we're even close to understanding the entirety of the hydrodynamics of something like a mosasaur, we we're we're not really, are we? So there's a lot of mysteries no. about this sort of thing. Well, yeah, we're still there's still a lot of um, sort yeah. of fairly basic work to be done on obviously living swimmers. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is interesting how these things, like, it does feel like intuitively there's something there that does something hydrodynamic. You know, they're aligned with the flow to a certain extent, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and that animals, lots of aquatic animals don't have perfectly smooth skin. This is not usually a thing, which would be, so I think a lot of people, an intuitive thing. You want to be as slippery as possible, right? Mm. Um, yeah, but there you go. Yeah, I seem to remember there's something about um, part of the reason for skin textures in aquatic things is t is anti-fouling adaptations because mm -hmm. one of the main consequences of living in the water is that other things grow on you and <laughs> um, a lot of the adaptations are in some way connected to that but you would again think that having a, being at all rough would be not good because then you're generating a, a substrate that's like you know easier for things to attach to but mosasaurs yeah, obviously if they've they... got hooks or whatever but i guess if they yeah. um if they're sort of working on a more of a suction sort of basis then smooth is better yeah i don't know yeah i don't know <laughs> but, um they, they obviously would have shed their skin as squamates they presumably shed it in you know like decent sized patches and is that at all connected to this? Because if you've actually, if you shed like all, okay, by the way, li lizards, um, even lizards and snakes mostly have determinate growth. They reach like sexual maturity and they stop growing. I, I, it's always worth saying that because there's still this prevalent assumption that reptiles just keep going throughout life. That is not true. It's true for some, but it's not true for the majority. And squamates in particular have determinate growth. But I say that because even though that's true, they still, to my knowledge, all of them still shed their skin throughout life. And if you like, you know, you you won't get to see this in the wild. But you know, if you keep a pet lizard, I've got obviously a um, central bearded dragon. You see that they shed they're shedding skin like throughout the year, like in chunks, sort of like sections, are, are coming mm. up all the time. Add all this together. And could it actually be, again, I'm you know sort of making this up as I go along, but could it actually be that shedding regularly and needing to shed skin because of like fouling organisms, could it actually be easier to remove patches of your own skin if those skin sections are rough? Like, could it actually be, you know, like it's easier if you rub on the ground that like it's easier for, for skin to break away than if it's smooth skin? I I'm just I'm just making that up. Well, and also there's less. So if you shed a patch, there's going to be like a discontinuity between the where the new shed one is and the old one. And if you've got a really smooth covering, you're going to end up with sort of a dimple sort of effect, aren't you? Where the maybe yeah. So there's also <laughs> like maybe texture helps with just smoothing that out a bit. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, as I say, these things are so complicated. And they interact with life histories and stuff so much and like constraints, other constraints the animal are under that, yeah, it's very difficult to unpick. Yeah. Now, what sort of lizards are the mosasaurs? Again, when I say mosasaurs, I'm thinking of like all of them, the mosasaurians, so delicosaurs, egyalosaurs, and mosasaurids proper. Um, the, I think for a lot of people, based on what's in popular books and semi-technical books, there's this kind of idea that they are close kin of monitor lizards, possibly even like the sister groups of monitor lizards. 
and that hasn't been true for a long time. So Mosasaurs are part of a larger group called the Platinotans. There are various other groups within Platinota besides monitor lizards. Obviously, there's the Helodermatids, the Gila monsters, and beaded lizards. Uh, there's a bunch of ex- different extinct groups as well, Gobi Dermatids and such. And Mosasaurs, they are not close kin of Varanids, monitor lizards specifically. They're somewhere clo- they, they are hypothesized as being somewhere close to that whole Platinotan group. Are they within it? Are they assist to it? That's the sort of um, position that people working on fossil animals have preferred. And that whole group of lizards, so Mosasaur-type things and Platinotan-type things, are supposed are anguimorphs, right? And anguimorpha is the big group of lizards that, in addition to everything I've just mentioned, also includes shinosaurs, that's the Chinese crocodile lizard and fossil relatives, glass lizards, alligator lizards, slow worms and glass lizards, that, that group, the anguids. And the conventional thinking is that, yeah, mosasaurs go in there. Conventional thinking based on anatomy, and this is a whole can of worms that I'm not going to go into, conventional, or not in any detail, conventional thinking is also that snakes go in there. Snakes are also anglomorphs. And then, of course, some people have specifically said that they've they've um, put forward anatomical evidence linking snakes with mosasaurs. And there's this pythonomorph hypothesis, the idea that snakes and mosasaurs are sister taxa and that, that this is evidence that snakes actually originated um, as like amphibious or marine animals. Like I say, there's, there's a ton to say about that. <laughs> so all of that, everything I've just said, couches mosasaurs within the context of being anglomorphs. The problem is that Genetic studies don't support the monopoly of that version of Anglomorpha because snakes are the genetic data for this is very strong. Snakes are not Anglomorphs, they are a separate lineage within a lizard clade called Toxicophora. And Toxicophora includes Anglomorphs, includes snakes, but surprisingly includes iguanians, iguanas and their kin, a huge group. And Are we is... running out of lizards now? Well, that are outside many... this group? Well, no, there's like, there's, okay, so John, the biggest lizard groups are outside of Toxicophora. That's the Gecotans <laughs> and the Skinkamorphs, which may or may oh, not include the Sertids. Oh, were you? Well, I didn't think yeah, that was very funny. Go. And Amphisbanians are not a huge group, but they're also outside of uh, Toxicophora. And they're close, they're genetically shown to be close to the Sertids. Tangent. Um, so if, snakes aren't anglomorphs and if people have found support that snakes and mosasaurs are close kin how confident can you be that mosasaurs are also anglomorphs and basically on this there's fairly strong disagreement there are mosasaur workers who say that well the anatomical evidence putting mosasaurs within anglomorpha close to or within Platinota and probably close to Varanids and Kin is actually pretty good. And there's other Mosasaur workers that say that Mosasaurs ain't even Anglomorphs, that they're somewhere else. There's a big study, I've forgotten the names of the authors, I know Jacques Gauthier was one of them, and they uh, they've done several attempts to try and marry up the molecular results, the molecular shape of the squamatry with the anatomical and fossil data. And they find that some controversial fossil groups 
don't go in the anatomical positions that people prefer. And mosasaurs were one of them. Mosasaurs were not found to be like within Platanota. They were found to be like I can't I can't even remember if they were in Toxicophora. I can't remember if the study. I'm doing this off the top of my head, which is always a bad idea. But the take home from this is that the conventional idea that mosasaurians mosasaurs the whole lot the conventional idea that they might be close to varanids and stuff is quite probably not right the conventional idea that they're part of anguimorpha is potentially not right and the possibility exists that they are some other lineage that goes somewhere else and my money would be on if you imagine the ancestral toxicophoran which gives rise to iguanians gives rise to snakes gives rise to anguimorphs mosasaurs could be at the base of the anglomorph lineage or they could be at the base of the snake lineage that's where i would put a tiny sum of money not much i'm not very confident about it but um... yeah so it's sort of like a i don't know there's certain sort of intuitive um attraction to the idea that they are varanids or very close right because they kind of look like them but Yes. Um, a lot of that is probably to do with body proportions and things that can well, change very easily, yeah. right? Plus, we mostly think of monitors as, you know, people mostly think of Komodo dragons and relatives. Yeah. They mostly think of them as like big, you know, formidable predators able to tackle, you know, like relatively large thing. Obviously, Komodo dragons can kill, you know, people sized things and bigger. And to a degree, mosasaurs are kind of ecologically similar to that, even though they're totally not because they're aquatic or marine. Mostly marine. They're a freshwater mosasaurs. But, um, yeah, I'm sort of saying that, yes, there's a bit of that, but there's also not. They are. You also should think of them as very distinct, very different from from monitors. And I do sometimes think that the, the monitor, sort of the inevitable monitor comparisons have, like, swayed things too hard in a uh, in a monitor um yeah <laughs> towards a monitor model yeah whereas they, they may be yeah i guess you've also got the whole sort of monitors being you know some semi-aquatic it sort of has this sort of feeling like you you can see the evolution of mosasaurs right there mm. sort of idea yeah. i think yeah, going I've, on right i've literally got i remember there's there's a couple of kids books that do this they show yeah because you're right there are amphibious monitors like in australia merton's water monitor and they'll show that and then they'll show like an Aegialosaur, and then they'll show a Mosasaur. And in some of the most famous studies of Mosasaur evolution, like um, uh, by the late Bob Carroll, he did this. He would have a Mosasaur skull, an Aegialosaur skull, and a Mosasaurid skull. And would say, look, sort of, this is clear evidence of a macroevolutionary pattern. And and then there's been a pushback to that more recently. Um, it, and it is kind of connected to the debate about snake origins, which, like I said, is a whole nother can of squamates um <laughs> what else should we say about mosasaurs before uh moving away i'd say one more interesting thing so your classic big fully aquatic mosasaurs like tylosaurus mosasaurus they are hydropedal so flippers and they're also hydropelvic they don't have a bony connection between the reduced pelvis and the spine because obviously they've lost it because they're fully you know they're relying on the support of water whereas the ancestral condition for lizards and it's the case in delicosaurs and agialosaurs these like you know, early diverging lineages they are plesiopedal meaning they have like normal claw digits and they're plesiopelvic so normal bony connection 
you know, you'd think that within true Mosasaurids, that once you once they've made this transition to being plesio, sorry, sorry, once they've made this transition to being hydropedal and hydropelvic, that's it. They're all hydropedal and hydropelvic, but strangely, there are mosasaurs, mosasaurid mosasaurs that have been claimed to be plesiopedal. There's a there's a Hungarian tethosaurine mosasaurid called Pannoniosaurus, which it said is still still shouldn't have said that. There's a, a Hungarian which this mosasaur is plesiopedal. It supposedly has set like non flippery limbs, and yet it's nested within mosasaurids. It's surrounded by hydropedal lineages. And what do we make of that? And I discussed this in the book. There's like a number of... I discuss, oh, the book is the ancient sea reptiles. One one interpretation is the experts that described it screwed up and it's not plesiopedal at all. Another one is that some mosasaurs actually reverted to a plesiopedal condition from a hydropedal condition, which sounds radical and maybe is. And another possibility, and the one preferred by the experts that, that presented this, is that different mosasaur lineages evolved hydropedal specialization independently, which is the most head-screwy possibility because it, it sort of means that really tight anatomical specialization evolved convergently in more than one lineage and Mm. people tend not to like those kinds of um possibilities but then every single time you discuss it people are like well we think that you know name a really complex structure outside of vertebrates like insects there's like really complicated things that people think independently evolved multiple times and it's just that's insane but apparently that's exactly what happened so yeah i think we're sort of naturally we don't like very strong um what's this is this parallel evolution no it's convergent evolution and but we also don't like reversals and both of these things probably did happen relatively commonly and that really just makes it a big mess trying to figure out how things are related because i you know yeah (laughs) i worry i lie i lie awake at night worrying about reversals you know just how reversed things could get because a lot of the time as far as i understand it the genetic code's still there it could just be a couple of switches really simple to get back to something that we would you know we'd we'd given a fossil we'd interpret it as a late surviving something Mm. probably but actually it wasn't it was it just flicked a few switches because all the steps that got it to where it is are as we know, viable um, biological states. So from any point you are, you're just as likely to evolve something to go further in the direction you were evolving previously or back. Um, So, yeah, I don't (laughs) Oh, dear. And especially when you've got things, so so mosasaurs, you know, swimming, flying, they're so um, mechanically demanding that... um, you know, convergent evolution is really common in things like this. So I, yeah, I would have no horse in this fight. Mix my metaphors. 
Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah that's that's we... interesting. I didn't realize that um, Mosasaur Origins were so murky. I thought they were a little bit unclear, but I thought there was it was more settled than it is. So that's that's I, quite well. Yeah. I wild. I do I do note that um, like um the 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 take that you'd get from paleontologists i think is that this is not really controversial we're really confident that mosasaurs are platinotans or close to platinota and therefore are deeply non-controversially within anglomorpha that's the that's the sort of take that i get from reading some of the papers but then the ones that come from people that work on squamate origins squamate relate relationships more broadly are kind of like there's a couple of big questions about some of these groups and mosasaurs in particular, yeah. In view of the Toxicophora hypothesis, and in view of the fact that there are yeah there are mosasaur specialists who have said I, I asked a bunch of them you know about this specifically for for when doing research on the book agency reptiles, they said I don't think mosasaurs are anglomorphs and it's like well that you you think that that's a that's a real shocker relative to what every single book that talks about marine reptiles says. <laughs> so I summarize this in um, yeah ancient sea reptiles because I don't think it's been done like that much in the you know um, non technical literature elsewhere. But yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, the reversals thing. Yeah, we know for a fact that reversals have happened. We've got like indisputable examples of them, and like you said, we know for sure that organisms have the you know genetic capability to do things like a uh, you know the reappearances of structures that are information is carried in the genome, but they're not normally expressed in the phenotype. So yeah, you're right. I think there's, there's loads of cases where, well, wait a minute. If that, I, I always, uh, you know, without going off topic too much, Greg Paul's argument, which is about many of the feathery manoraptor and dinosaurs being secondarily flightless descendants of Archaeopteryx like forms that has an intuitive appeal because he's like, well, think of how specialized birds are for flight. And yet we know that at almost every opportunity, birds become flightless from quite a specialized condition. Now go back to early in their history, you know, the Jurassic in particular and early Cretaceous. Those animals aren't, you know, supreme aerialists. They're kind of scrappy proto flyers in many cases. Surely it's going to be much, much easier for them to, you know, uh, revert back to flightlessness as and when you know conditions favor it and uh, we're talking about that sort of thing in the fossil record i think i think the the main you know a take home can be that it's not you know no one should be blamed for this but we can't help we can't help but look look for tidy narratives for evolutionary history and when you look at what we actually know about so many lineages, when you're talking about, we think we've got a good fossil record when we've got animals separated by sort of like it. it, it so for those of you who don't know, it would be considered good to have, let's say, name, name your favorite group of animals. It would be considered good if you had one species per two million year intervals. That would be a good fossil record per two million year intervals. Often it's not that good. Often it's like the intervals are longer. They're sort of five to 10 million years. And now think of what we know or we think we know has happened within intervals of that time. Like there's cases where uh, organisms have, you know, developed new morphologies within hundreds of thousands of years, let alone like a couple of million years. So um, I don't know. The, the, I, I'm, I'm, I'm being vague and waffly here, but yeah, the, 
the fossil record is often still allows so much scope over tens of millions of years for us to not really understand some of these things. Jibber, jibber, jibber. I am completely waffling. That's completely useless. Yeah, uh, no, but I think it's interesting. The origins of mosasaurs and these sorts of things. It's very similar to, well, there's the origins of lots of large specialized groups are quite murky, aren't they? It's um quite interesting. Yeah, I was I was surprised. So when I first became aware of the so Mike Caldwell, a mosasaur specialist who's also invested in the origins of snakes, um, yeah, he's published these fairly lengthy papers saying like there's a lot of uncertainty over like how mosasaurs have been defined and whether the different mosasaur groups like fit into the sort of like conventional narrative of like one early adaptation to fully aquatic life and then everyone is aquatic forever afterwards. Um, quite surprised to see his his take on this but it's certainly certainly interesting and i think a different from like i say different from the thinking that you get from textbooks on the subject mosasaurs are quite diverse and i do in the book go through like the various uh, different groups talk about some of the like well-known uh characters and um the well-known the well-known taxa i should say and uh yeah biggest ones are over 15 meters long so like the among the biggest of all marine reptiles there are bigger ichthyosaurs in the Triassic. And the current, this is the last thing I have to say, current thinking is that mosasaurs underwent a spectacular and devastating mass extinction event at the end of the Maastrichtian. Um, more and more mosasaurs from the late Maastrichtian have been named within recent years, indicating that they were thriving at high diversity. They weren't kind of like dying out before the very end of the Cretaceous. And uh, it's in keeping with the fact that, yeah, diversity was high. Things were doing, things were going pretty well in most groups of animals until one terrible Thursday afternoon when uh, <laughs> everything went to hell. And it wouldn't have been nice at all to be around. It would be a horrible time. It would I, suppose it's, I suppose that leads to one last question. Like, um, you know, in the Mesozoic, we have so many... Um, marine reptile groups and oh why hasn't uh, why haven't any of them done it again we don't have large marine well we've got a couple right some turtles but you know why why do we not have like large hyper predators <laughs> um reptile hyper predators of the oceans anymore it's something well, because they've done it so many times before. You'd think that you know a little knockback like the KT extinction might, you know, <laughs> just have another go. Okay, so there were several groups of marine crocodilians in the mm. uh, Cenozoic, um, oh, dirosaurids. Okay. There were there were giant marine gharials. Obviously, post Miocene, uh, true crocodiles uh, took to the seas. Obviously, the saltwater crocodile. Uh, that's not that's not obviously fully marine, but it's, it is a seagoing reptile in parts of its range. But um, I think the main groups got taken out and it's one of those things where, as we've discussed before, you might think that, oh, lizards can become aquatic, lizards can become fully marine. Well, it actually turns out that there's only like a small number of lineages that can do it and the ones that, that are left just can't. Or it's not they just can't, it's like, why? I'm just not going to bother. I'm quite happy doing my thing here on land. There's no reason for me to become fully you know, marine. Uh that's part of it. And then the final part of it is I think that um, mammals did fairly quickly, uh, you know, take over the uh, the sort of relevant niches and that like made it literally too dangerous um, for like a sort of, you know, 
proto-swimmer um, or occupied the relevant niche space. That's always a dodgy argument because we always know that <laughs> the available prey is like, I think this all the time when, and I've said it several times when thinking about speculative biology, it's like, if you come up with a speculative world, it's like, there's the snake niche and snakes evolved once. Whereas when you look at the living world, it's like 20 things like occupied. This, just, that's just a bad example, a random example, but 20 things evolved that niche. The woodpecker niche. <laughs> yeah, there's like 20 things that became like woodpecker style things. So um, it's yeah. an odd argument, but but um, like cetaceans evolved in the tropics, in the Eocene. So you've had, and it, they reckon that they reckon we know that there were marine foraging predatory cetaceans within ooh within geologically a short span of time, like ten million years, the end of the Cretaceous, and yeah, they're they're those animals. I'm thinking of like the pachycetes and stuff in um you know the edge of Tethys, so what's now India and Pakistan. They were living alongside estuarine crocodilians or crocodiliforms, actually dinosaurids. But as soon as you got that, well, you're not, you haven't got like the, but arguably, you haven't got the ecological opportunity for things like a, a good sized lizard to sort of become a neo mosasaur. And where is that group anyway? You, you, you know, I think it's a bunch of factors. Uh, coming yeah. together so yeah i think it's one of those things we don't really understand very well sort of the large group replacement um well i don't understand it very well you know that why yeah and it's particularly noticeable after kt right the reptiles um really do yeah. shrink in terms of ecological space and mammals yeah, really I... expand I do. I think it's. I think it's a combination of different things, and I think the the broader the broader answer is to do with um, which groups are around with these opportunities, and that's different. And then, what is the ecological context? Is there is there like the right kind of environment to encourage that? And I don't think there is, because one of the really cool things about um, Mesozoic marine reptiles. There was a study on this published this year, and I've forgotten all the details about it. But some of these ecosystems, they are packed. Like you think of, think of like a modern, I don't know, think of, so we're both in the UK, surrounded by very fertile seas because of like, you know, the, the interplay of, you know, currents and whatnot, and what it means for oxygenation of the water and blah, 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 blah. Think of an ecosystem where it's like, there's a bunch of fishy things. Then there's like grey seals and stuff. There's one or two sharks, and then there's killer whales. All right, so really roughly, that's that's horrible oversimplification. You look at some of these Jurassic and Cretaceous systems, and like the seal level, there's like twenty seal type things. The shark level, there's like thirty sharky type things, and the killer whale level, there's like twenty killer whale type things. And yeah. there was a there was a study on a south. I think it was a northern South American assemblage. I think Colombia, somewhere like that. And it's the densest, like, packing of all these, like, high up in the food pyramid predatory marine reptiles. And it means that the productivity of that system is certainly in the modern world unimaginable, I think. And possibly, possibly within the 
Cenozoic, possibly unimaginable. I don't know, because like cetacean, predatory cetacean diversity was really high in the past, particularly in the Miocene. So I think that's part of it as well. It's like the productivity that was available that encourages this evolution hasn't been true at all times in history and hasn't been true like obviously after the end Cretaceous extinction event. So again, yeah. I don't I don't know where I'm going with this, but is that is that part of this as well? That it's it's dependent on, you know. The rules of the game, the sort of like the shape of the landscape, the, the, what's on the floor, the players in the room <laughs> is not is not the is not the same throughout the whole of history. It's radically different. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay, so we'll stop there. That was a brief rambling meander through the world of Mosasaurs ish. Um. So as we're there's one group next that we'll do in another episode, and that's turtles. There's a lot to say about sea turtles. Okay. Nope. Okay, so, um, right, we're still busy with Tetsukon prep, and we'll see uh, a good number of you uh, in a couple of weeks in London. I've been... <laughs> what accent is that? <laughs> London. <laughs> mm. I do have to tell my kids to stop talking like East End Barrow Boys. Um, <laughs> uh let's uh, are you on the internet john i'm on the internet yes i'm at johnconway.art and i am on mastodon at john at sauropods.win i'm spread thin across numerous different platforms <laughs> i still use twitter x I cringe, literally cringe, literally every single time I go to that site and see that it's called X. Every single time. It's like, it's a 14-year-old boy in his mum's basement who came up with that idea. Uh, it's a very <laughs> novel novel perspective. I'm sure no one's ever heard that before about that that person. Um, yeah, so I'm on that. At te- oh, at... Lando Carizian, a suave, dashing black man in his 30s, leads a group of aides and some Cloud City guards rapidly towards the landing platform. The group, like the other citizens of the city, is a motley collection of aliens, droids, and humans of all descriptions. Lando has a grim expression on his face as he moves onto the landing platform. See? My friend. Keep your eyes open, okay? Chewie growls as Han walks down the ramp. Lando and his men head across the bridge to meet the space pirate. (laughs) Lando and his men? You just said it was people of all description. Now it's just men. Lando stops ten feet from Han. The two men eye each other carefully. Lando shakes his head. Why, you slimy double-crossing nobit swindler. You got a lot of guts coming here after what you pulled. Han points to himself innocently, mouthing me? Lando moves threateningly towards Han. Suddenly he throws his arms around his startled longest friend and embraces him at Tetsu! Do you know why I deliberately said Han? Do you know no, why? I don't know why you said Well, 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 it's very interesting. Okay, so when Chewbacca is like throttling Lando Carizian, and Lando says, there's still a chance to save. And he's supposed to say Han, because that's his name. It's Han Solo. He doesn't. He says Han. He says Han Solo. He mispronounces it. And all the other actors are like, oh, is it meant to be Han, not Han? So C-3PO, who normally says Han, says Han as well. 
and uh, uh, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia, <laughs> says Han as well. So when they did the solo movie, they deliberately have it as canonical that Lando deliberately mispronounces Han as Han. So there you go. That's yeah. That's your really vital, fascinating piece of Star mm-hmm. 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 of the day. We really should stop there. Thank you. Bye. 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 <laughs> <laughs>